When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello guys, welcome to the next episode of the Challenger Tour podcast. This is part two of the off-season content that I have for you. This time it's just going to be me, as I um, said last time, this is just going to be me talking about the best matches of the 2023 Challenger season. You might have seen this article already from me in article form, you can always catch it there as well. But I thought that this was also going to perform okay in a, in a Challenger, uh, in a Challenger, in a podcast-like scenario. Um, I think it's it's gonna be a fine list. I couldn't really, um, I guess, invite anyone over for this one because I feel like most people wouldn't have watched enough to <laughs> have lists like this, right? Um, I mean, I don't want to sound like you know I'm the only reliable person on the planet, but uh, well, certainly um, mo- people who don't really treat it like as as their job, let's say to watch every single final, you know, to follow every event day in, day out. They sort of come and go with their challenger interest more so, and then it's pretty tough. Um, of course, I have to note at first that, well, this is incredibly subjective because you only have 196 events, and even if you follow it, you know, like me for the purposes of the show and for Twitter and etc., and of course for my own enjoyment, <laughs> first and foremost, um, if even if you've been to like eight events live, it's just impossible to watch everything. So obviously there are matches that I missed. There are matches that have gone, you know, over my head. Uh, the list is probably very final heavy. I think it's also pretty Europe heavy as well. There's one match from that was played in the States and there's one match that was, well, two matches that were played in South America. So... Um, I, I was thinking of making this one like a bit more diverse, but I ended up just going with what I felt like were the 10 matches that I enjoyed the most or, you know, they had the best combination of enjoyment and uh, narrative storyline as well. So yeah, basically that's going to be uh, the plan for today. I'm going to chat about that. Uh, I have absolutely no clue how long this will last. Uh, probably like 30-40 minutes is what I'm assuming. Um, I hope you guys won't mind that the off-season episodes are probably going to be a bit shorter. Although the previous one, of course, with Alex, the award show was quite long. By the way, I I, uh, I was uh, pretty amused by the fact that at least a couple of you um, texted to me uh, about the Prismich Alcaraz and um, Prismich Menchik comparisons that Alex made on that previous show. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one who was like, what? Wait? But well, um, of course, uh, that's his opinion. And we, we did talk about this on the previous show. Um, so if you want to catch that, of course, it's still there on the Great Shot Podcast feed on Cracked Rackets. And I think um, before I start, I'm going to talk about some honorable mentions as well, which are actually not in the article. So, you know, if, you, if you've if you read it, this is the new part anyway. 
And I think I, I have to say that I was really hoping to put in a Colin Wong match. I just wasn't sure which one. Just because, you know, he's had so many roller coasters in his last four or five events, let's say. Uh, I was thinking of that one against Taro Daniel. There was a great one against Tristan Schoolkate. And I think if there was like a way for me to put in, you know, four Coleman Wong matches at the same time into this, I probably would have had them pretty high even. But, you know, it's just singular individual matches. So I ended up missing out on Coleman Wong on this list, which I think is a bit of a shame. Uh, after I released my article, um, Keen also texted me about Tomic and uh, a few of his classics this year. I think the one against Kudla was one of the last ones I eliminated, but there's also the one, uh, maybe that's just recency bias, but the one against Tabilo, right, in, in Brasilia, uh, that was ridiculous as well. Um, I think both of these were just incredibly dramatic and also had the Bernitonic play style, which, as we all know, it's, I mean, it's it's definitely quite entertaining. Sometimes it doesn't have all that much to do with, like, regular tennis, but that's also fun. I mean, we like the variety from him and sometimes even the, the mental, uh, let's say, deficiencies. But anyway... Um, I decided not to in the end, and I also have to give an honorable mention to what I think was like literally my number 11 on my shortlist, which was Filip Sekulic against Izhu in one of the Chinese challengers, and I should really know which one that was. I think Zhuhai off the top of my head, I am checking this right now. It was Zhuhai indeed, second round, 3-6, 7-6, 7-6 for Izhu, the um, phenomenal Chinese junior who I think in, in next years, you know, we're going to see a lot of um, a lot of that guy on the Challenger Tour as well. I think he has excellent pro professional prospects. So, um, yeah, I think that that match as well just had so much drama and was probably missed by a lot of the usual uh, followers of this show as well because I, I know most of you aren't based you know in a time zone that would allow you to watch Asian challengers for the most part in my time zone barely allows me to watch most Asian challengers um, yeah so I think it's just a bit of a shame that players um, matches like this you know they, they kind of get lost in all the um, sort of tennis twitter let's say discussions but well it is what it is. I wish that I included a match from, you know, either that Wong roller coaster, whichever, or Sekuli Drew. But in the end, it was actually um, one of the last two matches that I decided to cut down on and simply uh, drop the list to 10. So let's start from number 10, of course. You know, this isn't going to be that sort of list. We're not going to start off from number one. Definitely not. Uh, so for my number 10, I actually ended up going with Stefano Travaglia beating Jakub Menschik in Modena. Around one, that clay, pretty fast event that uh, Emilio Nava won. So in the end, uh, it was a little, I guess, inconsequential for the rest of the event. But at the time, it didn't feel like it. I remember, of course, on the on this show, uh, you know, previewing the event, saying that, wow, wow, Travalia Menschik, I mean, what a round one. And it absolutely delivered. You know, both guys were actually, like, just absolutely peaking at the time. Menschik was coming off that challenger title in Prague. And we all know that Travalia is just absolutely, you know, a mixed bag these days. But 
sometimes you still have that, that top 100 quality for a match or two. And he definitely had it here in Modena. Um, I just remember watching this match and being amazed by all the phenomenal rallies. Like it just felt like every other rally is a treat, you know, and the, the clean ball striking, the shot making, the um, yeah, just, just the lengths that the players had to go to to even win a point. I think it was just phenomenal and um, yeah, it made my top 10, which uh, at first, honestly, it wasn't like a huge contender in my mind. But then when I was left with like five or six uh, matches on the shortlist, I actually felt like, yeah, that was one of my best experiences watching tennis this year for sure. Uh, at number nine, we have Otto Virtanen beating Max Purcell in the Lille final, 6-7, 6-4, 6-2. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the story was pretty important here and it's a little bit disappointing that Virtanen didn't follow up on this performance because, I mean, in March he was just ridiculous. He won, um, was it Lugano or Biel? I think it was Lugano that he won, then quarterfinal in Biel losing to Rodionov and then he wins Lille as well. So that was the moment when we were all certain that Virtanen is going to be in the top 100, let's say, at the end of the year. But of course, he had an awful summer, never really regained it. But uh, Purcell was also coming of these three titles in February and March, right, in uh, in India, three in a row. So uh, obviously, Purcell was actually a guy who kind of followed it up. I mean, at the ATP Tour, he's been like up and down, but still quarters at Cincinnati, for example, and a top 40 ranking. So um, I think this was a very high profile final. And the thing was that I remember on the way to the final, I didn't feel like Purcell was playing that well, but he's sort of like slice grinding play style, you know, the, the weird game that Max Purcell has and something that really, uh, like the, the disruption skills, it really allows him to battle against opponents he usually wouldn't be beating, I guess. And I think it was a great fit for Virtanen, who, I mean, you know, that, that Virtanen was struggling against it because, well, as we know, Otto has his issues with shot selection and like sometimes does not have maybe the motivation, maybe the, the desire to start uh, constructing the points and, you know, just build, uh, build it up instead of just blasting the server forehand and try to end it on the first uh, possible mo at the first possible moment. And I think it was a fantastic test for Virtanen, you know, the, the fact that he lost the first set and then had to play such smart tennis all the way until the end, to the, um, until, the end until he got the title, um, sort of uh, play very steady, counter-punching even tennis sometimes. And Otto Virtanen could do it. He could pull it off at the beginning of the year. Uh, I think the final against Cem Ilka in Lugano was actually fairly similar. And um, we even had Otto Virtanen, of course, talking to me on the show this year in uh, Vilnius. And um, you could also hear him talking about it, you know, about sort of trying to learn to play, yeah, just m with more experience, sort of finding ways to play smart instead of just blasting his shots and using the natural talent that he has. But uh, yeah, it's just a shame that this version didn't really stay with us until the end of the season. Of course, Davis Cup performances, he was still amazing, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm still hopeful. And this was probably Virtanen's peak this year. The fact that he lost the first set, had no margin for error, uh, played against an opponent who was really tricky for him and still managed to prevail and showed something that we didn't really know he had, or at least, 
you know, the, the most consistent version of his game yet. Um, then at number eight, it's going to be the Cagliari quarterfinal to me between Ugo Umber and Taru Daniel. 677664. And this is actually one of two matches on this top 10 list that I saw live. I don't think it's exactly why it's here. I think if I was watching it at home, probably it would have been high as well. Uh, it's just that, you know, I have so many memories from that as well. Um, I was watching it with Alex um, Borok, the, you might know him from Twitter. Um, he um, he came to Cagliari for a few days and actually this was one of the matches that we saw together and I remember it was just an insane experience because this was like a week after the Emery Galarno four hours 21 minutes match in Savannah which was just two minutes off the record for the longest challenger through match which by the way uh, is just from like 2010 onwards because that's when we have stats uh, courtesy also of, of Tennis Abstract of Jeff Sackman uh, who posted that on Twitter just a week earlier before uh, before Umber Daniel. So when we were watching that with Alex, it was just like constantly checking the time, you know, and seeing if it's possible, if they can actually get to the record. Because of course, Ugo Umber saved three match points in the second set. We sort of had already like the, this narrative that this might be longer than Farah uh, Cipolla in Barranquilla. This might be longer than Emery Galarno in Savannah. Eventually, it didn't come to uh, fruition because it ended at four hours, 13 minutes. Just, just four hours, 13 minutes. Uh, but I think what Umber showed really in terms of playing on clay, you know, of course he followed it up as well. He won Cagliari with another marathon over Las Logere. He won... Uh, was it Bordeaux or Turin? Um, Bordeaux, right? Um, yeah, Bordeaux a couple of weeks later. So uh, obviously he followed it up, but this was pretty much the first time we really saw him with that sort of ability to maintain himself in a rally in clay. And uh, yeah, that was that was great. I think Taro just played paid the price for just being passive when uh, he had the chance to close it out. Uh, you might, you know, in that in that article that I posted about this list, there's um, there's a video for, of all of these match points that Umber saved, and I think it's very clear that Taro did not, just didn't play with guts, let's say, on them. Uh, but yeah, it was a great experience for me, um, standing there, hiding from the sun as well, because it was, you know, Cagliari. It was absolutely awful. I was looking for any shadow I could get. Um, following this match with Alex and just um, instantly thinking about, well, after after Umber saved the three match points, just instantly think, uh, constantly thinking about the record, you know, whether whether this can break it. Uh, of course it didn't, but uh, well, still a ridiculous match and um, real marathon. I remember uh, Galan, I think, was playing next, maybe against Borna Goyo, and it was just also funny to think about that, right? I mean, how long they had to wait and how many times they had to warm up again and like, um, yeah, uh, just, uh, just a great experience for me. And speaking of Ugo Umber marathons, uh, number seven, Luca Van Asch defeating Ugo Umber, Paul final, 7-6-4-6-7-6. So speaking of match length, we have this, uh, another marathon from Ugo Umber, and this is actually the longest challenger final, and it was the longest challenger final, it is the longest challenger final by 25 minutes. So it's a record, you know, on, to me on par with the Greek sport eight challenger titles. Like, how do you break this? 
uh, eight titles in a single season, of course, I mean, I, I don't really know. And um, well, the, the previous record was Santev de Varman and Daniel Nien playing in Winetka 2015 and also Genaro Alberto Oliveri and Thomas Martin Echeverri in Montevideo 2022. Uh, both matches were three hours, 31 minutes. So Vanash Umber, they were actually going at each other for three hours and 56 minutes. Uh, this, of course, came even earlier than that marathon of Umber against Daniel. Uh, I think it was also very high in quality. Uh, the tiebreakers, uh, they had a lot of drama. They weren't maybe played at, at such a super high level. But, you know, that, that's good, right? I mean, that's that's what you like in terms of excitement. <laughs> Sometimes the weaker quality in the most important moments can actually bring out even more tension, right? And yeah, I, I, I think it was actually the recording of this show. I think along with Jakub, we were um, going to record right after the Po final. And it, it was a bit of a, an inside joke, a meme between us, that anytime we set up for something like this, so we were like, yeah, the, uh, let's let's do it after, you know, whatever final, because usually it would be on a Sunday, or let's do it after whichever match. And then almost every single time that match would go three sets, usually three hours. And this time it almost went four. So, you know, I wasn't complaining about the quality. I wasn't complaining about the drama, about the viewing experience, but I was complaining about the fact that we were supposed to record right after the poll final. And I think maybe it was, it started at like 3 p.m. So instead of 5 p.m., which I originally thought we were going to record it, we were actually recording at 7 p.m. Uh, but, you know, uh, it was one of the best matches of 2022, so who are we to uh, complain, really? Uh, number six, Alexander Blocks beating Corente Mute 7-6-6-1, done dead it round two. And this is the second match on the list that I saw live. And in fact, this is also the only match on my list that I um, th that was a two-setter. I don't think it's a disqualifying factor, for a match to be on a list like this, that it's a two-setter. But of course, we tend to gravitate towards the longer ones, towards the more uh, sort of toe-to-toe -to -toe battles. Here, the second set was really dominant for blocks. But I think what, what made me include it was that um, I don't think it was due to Mute dropping his level after the tiebreak or something. It was just due to how insanely blocks was playing. I mean... This was like a real breakthrough moment for him. Obviously, he was on a huge win streak, winning two 25Ks, but also had some tough moments on the way in Nanderit against Billy Harris, against Maximilian Neukrist. So like, I wasn't sure how he was going to handle Mute. I remember, you know, even the odds were pretty close, actually. And, you know, you could see that people were thinking that this guy might be good enough. He, he actually might be strong enough to tackle a player like this. Mute also coming off a title in Helsinki, by the way, having beaten Hugo Gaston in a very mature performance, especially for his standards. And um, yeah, the, the shot making in the opening set, I remember just being absolutely shaken by it. You know, I literally had like goosebumps. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, this was just one of these matches that you are still thinking about two hours after it happens. And uh, the way that Blocks was serving, crushing the forehand, going to the net, time and time again, Mute just, of course, he's super fast, he's super resilient, he is able to, with, with, with his touch, with his ridiculous hands, he's able to get back everything and make you finish the point five times. And he's still holding up Blocks, you know? He hits some weak volleys. I remember, you know, someone in my Twitter comments during this match was like, is he always that bad at the net? 
And I was like, well, I mean, he goes there 200 times. Of course, he's not. Of course, he's going to hit some bad ones. And indeed, maybe he wasn't always great at it. But he had that, you know, determination. He had that intensity. He had that will to keep going because he knew that's the way to go. And I think that was, yeah, such a really uh, phenomenal performance, especially in your first challenger appearance, because that was that was actually the first ever challenger that Alexander Brooks played. Still, he's only challenger to this day, to the, to the moment when I'm recording this, to the moment when you're going to be hearing it. So I, I, yeah, I think that it was absolutely astonishing. I couldn't get it out of my head. And um, I'm so glad that I was able to see it live as well. Uh, because I, I, I do think that if Blocks keeps going, if Blocks is going to be as good as I think he will be after this, uh, after this match, after this season, you know, uh, I think this is a match that we'll be coming back to in the discussion about him. This will be like the the moment we knew uh, if Blocks, of course, ends up being, you know, a top player, which I think, you know, is, is more or less a certainty. Like the guy is absolutely the real deal to me. Um, number five is Alexander Kovacevic beating Ibing Wu 3-6-7-5-7-6 in the Cleveland final. So uh, when it comes to the storyline, I don't know if you remember that, but in 2022, Ibing Wu defeated uh, Alexa- Alexander Kovacevic 6-7-7-6-6-3 in the Indianapolis final. Definitely one of the best matches of the year and it had Wu saving six match points. I didn't do a list like this in 2022. I think the last time I did it was actually 2020. So I don't know where it would have landed for me, but definitely up there as one of the best. I mean, in Indianapolis, the first set tiebreak was 12-10 and the second set tiebreak was 15-13. So yeah, it was a ridiculous match. And honestly, the Cleveland final was almost as good, I think. Uh, the hype was big. Uh, I think it was a phenomenal opportunity for Kovacevic to avenge that loss, you know, beat the past demons because he still was looking for his first challenger title. That was actually the, the second final that he played. So it was a second final, second against Wu. Uh, Wu, just a week later, ended up winning that uh, 215 Dallas. Of course, we know that the rest of his season didn't exactly go according to plan, but no one needs to be you know, convinced of the fact that Ibing Wu is supremely talented. And uh, he was, of course, the favorite going into this match. And uh, somehow Kovacevic managed to turn it around because he was down early and uh, sort of turned his backhand into a strength. And I think that was the case for most of his year as well. Definitely not the summer because he had an absolutely awful summer, but he won four challengers uh, challenger titles this year and if you think about it literally three of his four finals let's just look at the finals for now but there's going to be a lot of matches along the way to these titles that we could also point out but on the way it, in these finals i mean three of these he wins by resetting play with the slice and like slowing it down not with big weapons not with the serve and forehand well the serve of course is so important anyway but like he beats Clear Jr. in Temuco, he beats Nuno Borges in Shenzhen, he beats uh, Ewing Wu in Cleveland with his backhand being like a massive strength defensively. And that's such good progress for him. Yeah, I mean, let's let's forget about his summer. But anyway, Kovacevic Wu, Cleveland. Um, the attackable shot, the weakness that everyone targets in his game suddenly fires up. Whatever, basically whatever is he's hitting from that wing. If it's just a huge return, if it's a topspin ground stroke, if it's a slice especially or a pass, everything is good. And, uh, you know, he, he starts testing Ibing Wu's point construction. 
and eventually the Chinese cracks, you know, the attacks, the power, the pace, the insane shot making that he has, it's soaked up by Kovacevic. And uh, yeah, I think that was a perfect way for him to grab this title. What a match, what a win. And yeah, Wool and a week later was an ATP 250 champ and actually showed in some matches that he also can maybe um, build up the point a little better than he did in that Cleveland final, for example, against Isner in the final in uh, Dallas, where, you know, against Isner, against someone who's rather slow off the ground, you kind of need that ability. But in this particular match, Kovacevic was able to get back into many points and eventually proved a better player in the end. And um, yeah, that's one of my favorite matches of the year as well. Number four, uh, this is a very high profile final. I think a lot of people watched this one. Jack Draper beating David Goffin in Bergamo, 1-6-7-6-6-3. You know, Draper, Goffin, obviously people are gonna tune in. It's gonna be great, right? Well, it doesn't always work like this, but in this case, wow. Uh, Goffin just plays a ridiculous first set. Obviously, it's Jack Draper, who's like constantly injured. So I think when a lot of people saw that 1-6 scoreline, they were like, is Jack hurt? Is he struggling physically? And honestly, uh, I was also looking at it and I was like, hmm, is he doing fine? You know, is he is he ready to keep going with Goffin here? But uh, as it turns out, he was, and it was really just Goffin playing that first set in absolute god mode. You know, this was the David Goffin that made the top ten, that made the ATP Finals final, and of course, that's some some a bit similar to what I was talking about earlier with uh, Travalia, where the older players, let's say the players who currently aren't at their peak, they usually have that quality still, but they can only show it in patches, and well, that. That's what David Goffin did here. Although I cannot really say that his level dropped so much later on. Like Draper just stole the second set. At some point, the breakpoint stats were one out of one for Draper and five out of 19 for Goffin. So it can really just tell you how dominant uh, the Belgian was. But he then let buy a break twice in the deciding set and still lost it 3-6. Uh, there's a f- there's a couple of phenomenal rallies from this match, especially the Draper forehand down the line, which I feel like was actually um, one of his best shots. That's you know last stretch, let's say, of the season. Uh, he was hitting it just with eyes closed, really. That forehand counter down the line, uh, both in Sofia and also in the uh, French challengers, just constantly finding it, finding it really. Even Davis Cup, I think he had it. He had one or two like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, this was just a phenomenal win for Draper in the end, given how Goffin started the match, how red hot he was, how he had that all that trademark early timing, you know, that, uh, that uh, Goffin is famous for. Uh, I think it was a beautiful match between two great players, which really justified the hype. Goffin, former top 10 player, Jack Draper, future top 10 player. I won't say no. Uh, number three is actually between two former top 10 players. And it's not no accident that I did this segue. I, I knew what my number, what my number three is. Maybe in, at like nine or eight, I, I maybe I didn't remember and I was just scrolling through the list. But number three, number two and number one, I do remember which uh, which matches the, you know, are on at these spots. And anyway, it's Fabio Fonini beating Roberto Bautista Good in the Valencia final. 4-6, 7-6, 7-6. Um, another one of these finals that just really, you know, you see the names, you expect good quality, but, you know, in this case, Fonini, we were 
at some point this season probably expecting him to be more or less done at the end of the year. Bautista good, also not a great campaign after a decent start. So you don't really know if the standard of play is going to be this high. But of course, there was a huge story. First challenger final between two former top 10 players in 17 years. Again, credit for uh, to Jeff Sackman, to Tennis Abstract for the stats. And um, well, this one I actually found manually, Kanyas over Lapenti in Montevideo 2006. I was just typing in, you know, players who came to mind who could have been in a challenger final after they were in the top 10. But uh, I wouldn't know without Jeff that this was the fifth challenger final between two former top 10 players ever. Um, actually, the previous three were in like 1981, 1982. So um, yeah, this was this was the first one in 17 years and the second in 33. If you well, 31, if you want to count like that. No, actually 41. Yeah, but anyway, of course, yeah, huge story. Anyway, Fonini Bautista good before this year. Neither had played a challenger in like 10 years, over 10 years, I think it was for for both of them. So um, ahead of, ahead of uh, let's say, coming back to the tour, Fonini in the middle of the year and Bautista Agut uh, in Malaga, like two months before Valencia. So these two big names actually ended up delivering. Yeah, I mean, Fonini saves too much points in the second set. He again plays with so much determination. I, I don't know if he was aiming, you know, to, to be in the Australian Open. I mean, I, I know he was aiming to do that, of course. I don't know if this was in his mind exactly, but he played, you know, like a man possessed sometimes. Like he just wouldn't lose. And he did that even in Maya when he was injured next week, uh, the week after Valencia. He beat Gensh. Uh, he didn't even uh, play in the second round against Martino. He just wasn't fit enough at that point, you know. But you could see that he wants it so hard and uh, and so much. And I think uh, that's especially striking as Fonini for years was a guy we didn't really think that he would keep grinding challengers, but he's doing it. He's doing it now. And this was a ridiculous match. Bautista good serves uh, for the match at 6-4-5-4. Fonini comes up with incredible, incredible backhands down the line, time and time again. He steals the set, um, you know, he uh, plays, I mean, his usual game, like where you just see the natural talent, despite seemingly very little effort in terms of the footwork. But I mean, that, that that's what Fabio Fonini is. That's what he woos us with, right? That's what people love him for. And uh, Bautista Good, of course, his usual great standard, efficient, uh, he forces Fonini to be like constantly excellent and Fonini actually comes up with it. He he wins it after three hours. So, I mean, two former top 10 greats, two former top 10 greats still capable of a great, of a phenomenal level. What, what really do you want? I mean, this was, this was really a fantastic match. Number two, and by the way, <laughs> maybe I'm not going to spoil it in case someone doesn't know what my number one is, but okay, I'm gonna talk about it later. But yeah, let's let's just start with the number two. And it's the last final on the list. It's the Coquimbo final between Mateusz Puccinelli de Almeida and Joao Lucas Reis da Silva. Why? I mean, why, right? That's what you're thinking right now. How is this higher than Draper Goffin or Fonini Bautista Good? Well, as I said, this is a very subjective list. Um, and I, I really like the... It's not even the story behind the match, but I remember watching it, you know, and it was such a ridiculous experience because that week I was in Cagliari for the uh, Challenger 175, of course. I believe I had a flight out in on Sunday, maybe. I think maybe the finals were that week all on Saturday, something like that. Or maybe I had a flight out on... No, I actually had a flight out on, on Monday, sorry. 
And uh, I was watching this final stint in Cagliari, but already in the hotel, right? Because it's uh, it's a different time zone, of course. And um, this was held in a week with four other challengers, including the two first European 175s. So Exxon Provence Cagliari. You've got finals like Andy Murray, Tommy Paul. You've got Hugo Umber playing Lash Logere. I think that same week was also maybe Jordan Thompson, Max Purcell in South Korea, something like that. And for me, it was just so ridiculous that the best match of the week actually turned out to be this Challenger 50 in Brazil between two players that, you know, most people in the world have never heard of. Um, the clash of styles in that one, the drama, it was all there, you know. I think Lucas Reis da Silva, uh, João Lucas Reis da Silva, I've said it a few times on the show, I think he's one of these hidden gems of the South American circuit. I hope that he ever is able to, like, you know, stop being at this rough around the edges and just unleash his full potential. I don't know if that will ever happen. There are a few players like this in the South American circuit right now. I think um, Eduardo Ribeiro as well from his, from Reis da Silva's country is a good example. And maybe Alvaro Guillenmeza. I was talking about it on the uh, Challenger Awards show with Alex as well. But anyway, uh, I think him with that sort of ball bashing attitude, sometimes he can be even unwatchable. But when it's going, when it's going well, yeah, I mean, give me that. That's my style of tennis. And with Puccinelli de Almeida, you know, a player who's definitely more controlled, more consistent, uh, it's just a fantastic dynamic. I think it, the, the final was truly one of these matches that just made the whole, let's say, challenger community stop for a moment and just sit down and, you know, enjoy. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love that this match represents that, that sometimes on the Challenger Tour, you know, it's not going to be Andy Murray and Tommy Paul giving you the best match, but it's going to be Mateusz Puccinelli de Almeida and João Lucas Reis da Silva bringing you the best match of the week. And I, I, I love it. This is something I, I, I definitely love about the Challenger circuit, that regardless of the level, really, you can have classics. Um, I've said it time and time again as well, but this year, of course, I visited my first Challenger 50 in Sekeshvahervar, and that was legit like one of my favorite events of the year. I mean, the, the field was just ridiculous. Of course, that was maybe a more high-profile example because you had uh, Medvedovic, Maroshan, Pirosh, you know, all of them in the quarters. Uh, who else was there? Koboli as well, uh, Andreev, Serdarusic. But um, yeah, basically what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't really matter if it's a 50, a 175, a 125. You always get high quality tennis. And um, yeah, this final, uh, to me, I just really like what, uh, you know, the, the emotions that I felt during watching it. When, you know, I've, I've just seen many top 100, maybe even a lot of former, you know, top 20, top 30 players competing in Cagliari. I just saw it live, but I can get back to the hotel. I watched this random Challenger 50 final in South America, and I'm just stunned by the quality of it and the clash of styles between the two guys. And number one, and it turns out that my favorite two matches of 2023 are both all Brazilian. I don't know how this happened, honestly, but it, it's, fu it's fun. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. Uh, you know, when I had just the shortlist, I, did, I wasn't even aware of it, really. But then suddenly, you know, I tried to put it into a top 10. And yeah, I mean, but, but this match, I always knew was going to be first, honestly. It's Joao Fonseca beating Thiago Seipovild in uh, Florianopolis, second round. So this is, narratively, it's pretty similar to Bloxmute, 
uh, I think initially I had them closer. So like I, 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 I think when I started doing the list, I actually had Fonseca, Seibovid first, Bloxmute second. But I ended up putting Bloxmute a little lower, like number six. I guess Danderit, you know, it was just a more dominant display. It was just two sets, which, as I said, is not a disqualifying factor. But I like the, the story of the match building up more in Florianopolis. But it's pretty much the same, uh, you know, inter- as I said, narrat- narratively. Uh, you've got a great junior. Um, Blox was already a Grand Slam champion when he played Mute. He won the Australian Open, of course, in 2023. Uh, Fonseca... Later on, he won the US Open, so not at the time, but like we, we knew that he was going to be huge already, right? He had that quarterfinal in um, South America, whichever event, in uh, 2022, where he beat Navone Tirante, lost to Pagnis. We loved that run. Uh, then Rio, probably a very disappointing performance, but uh, I remember thinking that it wasn't actually too early for him for that Rio ATP 500 wildcard. It was just that he you know, got tense and didn't really show his full potential, even, you know, whatever it is right now. But you get him against one of the dominant forces of the challenger circuit this year, actually someone who, along with Max Purcell, I think, has a very impressive record of playing over 40 matches and still being over 80% in terms of the win rate. And uh, yeah, Sabovit, I mean, he was destroying the challengers in South America. Of course, now he's in the top 100. He had the win over Daniel Medvedev at Ron Garros. So there was a part of me which was like, yeah, this probably is going to be easy for Sabovit. I would love to see Fonseca trouble him, but I don't think it's going to happen. You know, Thiago is just playing far too well at the moment. But um, even though Sabovit was just, you know, on a ridiculous run before this win, on a ridiculous run after this win, he actually managed to, I mean, Fonseca actually managed to win this match. And he not only looked, you know, on par with him, but he even pulled off that comeback from a set down. Uh, the serving, which we already loved in 2022, was back again. And the way it was able to set him up for the plus one forehand which, you know, that shot is just absolutely elite. elite. And the fact that he was able to beat Sabovield, you know, forehand-to-forehand duels, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, if you've ever seen Sabovield on the court, you know, that's his best shot. You know, that's the shot that kills Medvedev in Paris. And yet Fonseca manages to outplay him, you know, just trading from their best shots. And yeah, I think, again, what I said about Blocks Mute, it still really uh, comes up here. If Fonseca ends up being as good in the pros as I think he will, and of course Fonseca is like, uh, you know, has a year on Blocks, let's say that, in terms of, um, you know, his age. So uh, he is like a, a year ahead, let's say. <laughs> Although it's it's not exactly true because, you know, Blox is right now in like the top 350 or something like that. So of course, Blox is significantly higher ranked and has a better starting position for uh, 2024. But anyway, I think both of these should be top players. I would be very surprised if either of them doesn't, let's say, make the top 50 at least um, in a few years. But anyway, what I'm trying to say that if Fonseca, well, for Fonseca, I guess we we also have that 2022 challenger with uh, Navone and Tirante wins and the great match against Bagnis as well. But 
this is the this is the one that we're going to be remembering right this is the one that we're going to be talking about as that sort of breakthrough moment as that moment when we saw just how special Joao Fonseca is and I love this match for that for that as well and um, yeah both the story and the exceptionally high quality um, as I said I think this one was actually pretty clear to me when I had the shortlist I was probably thinking that yeah Blocks Mute was going to be higher I was probably thinking that Fonini Bautista Good wasn't going to be top three, which I eventually put it at. Uh, I think I initially wanted to have Kovacevic, Wood, Raper, Goffin a little higher than they eventually landed. But there was one number one. There was only one number one from the get-go for me. And it was Fonseca Seibovic. Um yeah, and that's that's it for 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 today. Really, um, we talked about my lists of the ten challenger matches. Yeah, and if you have any performances that I didn't mention, um, you know, just just fire at me on Twitter, whatever. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I I will be glad to hear you know what your top matches of the year were. Um, as I said, I think this was the first time I did that list from since 2020. But I had a lot of fun writing it up. So, yeah, it was it was really fun for me. Um, I'm actually just looking at my 2020 list. I don't know if you want to hear what's on it, but I might just quickly tell you. Uh, I also don't remember most of these. I remember the top three, I think. So my number 10 was Serundolo, Fran Serundolo over Pedro Souza in split final. Yeah, good one. Nine was Jack Sock beating Ugo Umber, Indian Wells, and actually a two-setter. That's interesting. I don't remember that much. All that good. Um, number eight, Vukic over Escobedo in Monterrey semis. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, number seven, Alcaraz Martinez, Alicante final. I remember that one, yeah. From four, six down um, in the tiebreak, in the first set tiebreak, Alcaraz just produced a series of ridiculous shots. Uh, I love that one. Um, then we have Tiafona Kashima, Dallas round three. Uh, oh, because that was still, yeah, before the pandemic restart, I guess it was still when challengers had six rounds. So yeah, Tiafona Kashima, I remember that much for sure. That was like, you know, when you knew that Nakashima was going to be this good, I guess. Uh, of course, he didn't end up getting the win, but still. My number five, another two setter, Vavrinka over Karatsev in the Prague final. But that makes sense. Of course, Vavrinka, you know, coming back to the Challenger Tour, that was a huge story. And then there's also uh, Karatsev, who made a jump of 140 places, I think, 140 places in the rankings during these three weeks right after the restart. Soon enough, was an Australian Open semi-finalist. Uh, number four, Musetti beating Tiafo in Forli. That was that two-week stretch when Musetti plays in Rome. And then Forli, I think he wins, uh, he beats four uh, top 100 players to win that title. So yeah, that's a good pick as well. And as I said, my number three, I, I do remember that. Uh, Jerzy Janovic beating Iži Veseli in the Paul semi-final. Maybe a little bit of a biased pick, but I think that uh, early 2020 comeback from Janovic was very exciting for everyone. I mean, his level was so good. And uh, number two, Alcaraz Musetti, famous match, right? Trieste semi. Uh, I'm, not, I'm surprised this isn't number one, but actually my number one was also amazing. Punta del Este final, Monteiro over Cecchinato. Um, yeah, I, I want to look at this list that I made this year in, from 2023 in a few years and feel as nostalgic for these matches as I 
as I just was reading out my 2020 list. But uh, I think I will be, you know, the, they were this good. They were this exciting. Of course, this year, 196 events, whereas in 2020, we only had 56. But still a lot of classics, right? I mean, that Alcaraz Martinez, Alcaraz Musetti, especially given where, you know, where Carlos is right now and all the memories with Janowicz's comeback. And uh, yeah, that Punta del Este final, absolutely, absolute jewel. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> That's, as I said, that's going to be it for today. There's going to be one more off-season episode. And after that, we will already have some challenger to previews, to preview. Uh, this episode is coming out, well, probably on the 18th of uh, December, on the 25th. So a day after, well, I guess on Christmas, uh, you're going to get another off-season episode. As I said last time, I'm not exactly sure what, will, what it will be yet. I'll come up with something. And then um, the next episode, I guess, will be on like, what, January 1st then? I guess it must be January 1st uh, will be the uh, first, you know, regular episode when we're back to the normal schedule of previewing, recapping challengers. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you for today. It was really fun. I think next time I'm also going to mention the... Um, maybe it's actually going to be the top, the main topic of the episode. I don't know, but I'm definitely going to mention the... Uh, challenger accelerator spots for the juniors you know how these players did in 2023 and also who gets them for next year and maybe who we sort of wanna watch taking advantage of this right uh, I think that's that's a good idea for next time I think that's something I, I, I definitely will dedicate a section to it I'm not sure yet if it will be the whole show or, or, or just a section of it. And we're also going to talk about Martin Krijan a little bit, um, you know, as a bit of a tribute for, for Jakub, I think. We have to keep talking about the Slovak players. And I, I, I have to say that I am really, really sad that I cannot, you know, tell him about this, new, this, this news, right? That Martin Krijan is coming back. And that he actually is playing an ITF 15k qualifying. Like I, I, I can just imagine the shock on Jakub's face, you know, when he, uh, when he saw uh, Collision's name in the draw. Uh, it's a shame he he never gets that moment, and we never get that moment of of seeing his disbelief and probably excitement as well. I don't think he was a big fan of Martin Klijan like personally, but you know, still a massive figure for Slovak tennis. But anyway, uh, both Jakub and, and, uh, and Martin Klijan were massive figures for, for Slovak tennis. But anyway, um, yeah, this is again it. And uh, see you guys next time. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this different episode as well with me just talking about the top 10 matches of the season for me. Uh, bye.